Let's open our Bibles tonight, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 21. And after all these Christmas carols, I feel like I ought to be preaching a Christmas sermon tonight, but we're not going to. We're going to talk about heaven again. And uh, since we began this chapter back in uh, September, first week of September, I believe it was, I, I mentioned then that there could be a complaint made against my preaching, one of many complaints, I suppose, and that is that I don't preach enough sermons about heaven. And what I tend to do is talk about heaven whenever we have a funeral service, but to uh, speak on the subject of heaven alone, I really haven't done that very often. Uh, we talk about it lots of times when we're dealing with other subjects, but as you probably are very much aware, I am more prone to preach about hell than I am about heaven. And some of you might consider that to be a very serious shortcoming. But uh, I'm trying to make amends to you here as we look at uh, the 21st and 22nd chapters of Revelation because these speak of heaven. So we're kind of taking a a slow approach to this, and I'm giving you all I can in these few weeks uh, about heaven and the description that John has given us here. Now, this is a, a great subject, but it's also, in a certain sense, a difficult subject because heaven is so far above our comprehension. Uh, We just really can't understand it all. And I can't give you a better explanation of what heaven is than what John has given here. The language is fairly straightforward and simple. And I don't want to give you a lot of conjecture about heaven. So I just do my best to try to help explain this to you. And as I've stated a couple of times in these messages, I do know this, that um, this is not all that heaven will be. It's at least this much what we read here, but this is not all that heaven will be because we simply can't understand it. Now, we want to look at the 21st chapter again, and what we've been doing here is skipping around uh, verses 9 through 27, uh, gathering this information and putting it into perspective as, as John is given a tour of heaven by an angel. And this part of the Scripture concerns mostly the outside features of of heaven, the new Jerusalem. So if you look in Revelation chapter 9, we're just going to read three verses here, verses 9 through 11, same ones that we've read previously, and then we'll get the others as we go on through. But verse number 9 says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now let me give you those first three blanks on your listening sheet very quickly. Those are the subjects of the first three messages. Uh, The angels of the city, the appearance of the city, and the architecture of the city. Uh, The angels, of course, are the ever-present heavenly hosts of God that will be the attendants of God's people in heaven. Uh, They'll live alongside of us there. And John was given a tour of the new Jerusalem by one of these angels. And as we look in scripture here, we're reminded that these angels are ever present there. As you go into the city, there are 12 gates to the city. And at each one of those gates, there is an angel that stands there like a sentinel watching over people that go through. Now, I don't want to spend time this evening talking too much about angels, but I will tell you that I, I would certainly 
like to see an angel. I mean, I'm interested in these majestic beings of God, and I'll be interested in seeing them when I get to heaven. But I don't think it's really all that good for us to get too infatuated with, with uh, angels now because that interest has caused a lot of people to be speculative about them and caused a lot of superstitions and in some cases has even caused people to worship angels. And angels were not created to worship. Angels are not to take the focus off of God. But we can think about angels and learn about them because God gives it to us here in Scripture. So it is all right for us to study them. We just don't want to go beyond what Scripture reveals. Number two on your listening sheet is the appearance of the city. And the main emphasis that we discussed uh, under this point is the appearance of the city which reflects the glory of God. Now, God's glory is spoken of in a visible way in the Bible in terms of light. And so the light of God's glory is the illumination of this city. And the entire New Jerusalem is like one great crystal clear diamond that has God's glory shining through it. Thirdly, we talked about the architectural design of the New Jerusalem. It's a cube-shaped city with equal lengths of, or equal length and equal width and equal height. It's immense, about 1,500 miles on each side. It's surrounded by a diamond wall that's likely as high as the city itself. It's 200, over 200 feet thick, has 12 entrances, which are gates, and each one of those gates is made of a single pearl. Then the walls of the city have foundations that are made of 12 different types of gemstones. The streets of it are made of transparent gold. And what we gather from the conglomeration of all of that information, the precious stones, the metals, and all of that is really the tremendous wealth of this city. Its wealth is incalculable. We can't even think in numbers like this. And all of that, God has promised to his people that will be there. That is our inheritance. Then the great architect has also made it a symmetrical city. And I think that we could look at it as one huge temple of God. Now, the word says that there is no temple in the city. So I think it probably is best to look at the entire city as being one great big temple of God. Now, as you know, the temple here that was on earth that uh, uh, was built by David, or by Solomon, rather. David prepared the materials for it, but Solomon built the temple. And both the tabernacle and the temple were exclusive places. Only the priests could go there, and only at certain times of the year could they get into the main part, that holy of holies of of the tabernacle or the temple. But when we get to heaven, all of God's people are priests, and God invites us to fellowship with him and worship with him all of the time. Well, we're going to move on tonight then to another part of the description. And number four on your listening sheet is the amplitude of the city. And the amplitude is the magnitude of space that's contained in a city of this side. Now, I'd like to go back to the 16th verse. Uh, We've already discussed the size of the city in another message. But I thought that we would take a look at this again just to get an idea of the immensity of the New Jerusalem in terms of the space that would be needed to house all people that have been saved in all times. Now, Revelation 21, verse 16 says, And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. 
And once again, we are talking about a city that's 1,500 miles on each side. It rises to a height of 1,500 miles. And I gave you a comparison that uh, a city that had a footprint of this size would cover about one-third of the continental United States, from Maine down to Florida, all the way across to, to Colorado. J.A. Seiss, in his commentary, The Apocalypse, gives us another comparison. He says that it would cover all of Britain, Ireland, France, Spain, Italy, Germany, Austria, Prussia, which he lived in the 19th century, and that included the Baltic states and European Turkey and half of European Russia. This city would cover all of that. And so it, that just shows you it blows away any city that we can even think of. Now, we do have a, some comparisons of the size of cities that's found in the Bible. Um, Nona, Noah, uh, Jonah, rather, for instance, was told to preach repentance to the city of Nineveh. And in Jonah chapter 3, God said to Jonah, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It says Nineveh was a city of three days' journey, and that means that it would take three days to cross the city. And they tell us that uh, ancient records say that Nineveh was about 50 miles across, so that was a huge city. Other large cities in that time were cities like Alexandria, Egypt, Alexandria was about three and a half miles long and about a mile wide. Babylon was 14 miles on each side. And so as John writes this, you can see that they just really had nothing to compare this to. There, there is not a city upon the earth that wasn't at that time that could even approach to the size of the New Jerusalem. And today, there is no city that approaches this size. We think about, for instance, uh, Los Angeles. You go down to L.A. and... You know, there's city after city that's one right after another. And if you go around the 405 freeway there and go around the whole thing, it's, what, 70, 75, 80 miles to get around the entire area. There's an immense population there. But that doesn't even come close to the size of the New Jerusalem. So that kind of gives you an idea of how that God does things in such things in such superlatives. God does things in magnitude. I mean, do you ever think about why God would create a universe that's as large as it is? They say that the universe is 15 trillion light years across. You know how big that number is? That's 2.79 followed by 15 zeros. That means if you could travel 186,000 miles per second, which would be 700 miles per hour, that it would take you 15 trillion years to cross the universe. That's incredible, isn't it? I don't know how that happened. God did that. The pinhead exploded or something. I'm still trying to figure that out, how all that happened. But you just can't think in these kinds of numbers. God just deals in, in just such immense proportions. Take a beach and you think about the grains of sand that are on just one beach. How many grains of sand are there? Or if you decided that you were going to try to empty the ocean and you were going to do that with a gallon bucket, one gallon at a time, how long would it take you to empty the ocean? Well, you get an idea how God deals in such immense proportions. And the New Jerusalem is not a compact economy-sized city. But not only do we consider that surface area 
of the of the New Jerusalem, just the bottom level. But we also need to recognize that it is a multi-storied city, a multi-storied city. I mean, you think about what what would be the purpose of God building a city that's 1,500 square miles uh, in in you know on the bottom level of it, and then having 1,500 cubic miles of space above it if there wasn't any use for that space. And that's led a lot of people to believe that what heaven is like is a multi-layered city. And so uh, it's likely that the gates of the city uh, and the wall are as high as the city itself, and so it would be entered on several different levels. Well, you start to think about the uh, surface area then if you have a multi-layered city, and people have started to kind of put figures together to try to figure out, well, just how much room is there in the New Jerusalem? And someone has calculated that you take the um, layers of the New Jerusalem if it was in, in, in storage, and let's say you were going to put that one mile apart, each story one mile apart, that would be a huge story. That would give you, of course, 1,500 uh, levels uh, in the New Jerusalem. And if you did that, one story one mile apart, you would have 200 or 2,225,000 square miles of surface area on each level. And that would turn out to be 3,375,000,000 square miles total. And if you, if you used uh, biblical measurements, for instance, you use a, 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 a furlong, you'd be talking about the, the height of a state, which is the same thing, which would be about 625 feet or six stories. And if you divide it into 625 feet, you just dramatically increase the surface area in this place. And then if you think that each of those stories, let's, let's say, for instance, you have 1,500 of those, one mile apiece, and you have one street that's on each of those, each of those um, levels, then you'd have 1,500 miles of golden streets, which would be enough to, to reach around the earth 90 times. And when I was talking about those different levels, you put all those different levels together, if they're one mile apart, that's 17 times the surface area of the earth. So again, just giving you some idea of how immense that the city of New Jerusalem is. Then also, it's a highly populated city. J.A. Seiss wrote, God did not create the earth in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. Much rather then, would he not lavish all this glory and splendor upon the eternal city without knowing that enough out of the family of man would embrace his salvation to fill and people it? And the population to fill and occupy a city 1,500 miles long and broad and high, allowing for the amplest room and space for each individual, family, tribe, and tongue and nation, would necessarily mount up to myriads on myriads who sing the songs and taste the joys of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Henry Morris did some unusual calculations on how many people have been saved since the beginning of time. And he calculated the numbers of children that die in infancy. Then he took out the amount of space that would be needed for dwelling places. And I have no idea how he, able, he was able to figure all of that out or what he used. But he came to the conclusion that for each individual in heaven, there would be about 30 cubic miles of space. Now, according to his calculations, there would be about 20 billion people in heaven. Now, I, I don't know how many people have been preached to. I don't know how many people have received Christ. But there is one statistic that, that I know about people that are in heaven. Uh, I do know this, that every year there are 42 million babies aborted worldwide. 
That means that 115,000 infants go into heaven every single year. Or every single day, rather. 115,000 every single day. You know, a couple of months ago, I was talking to Pauline about the baby that was in her family and we had a, this 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 these parents and we have them on our prayer page they have a a baby that died of SIDS at seven months old and it so happens that that baby was born into a drug addicted family and when that baby died Pauline said there was really no sorrow about it they had no feeling about it at all no remorse that the baby had died and you imagine what it would have been like if that baby had been raised in that family what would it have been like for that child? You know, sometimes we think about the immediate and, and we, we, we wonder about this. How could God ever allow a child to die? And there's some people that get very angry at God over these things. But when you put that into a heavenly perspective, do you think that a child would be better off living in a family like that, growing up in a family like that, or for God to take that child and, and take it to heaven to be in his presence right then? You know, I know that a death of child is extremely difficult. I've never had to go through that. But we have to think about how wise that God is, that a lot of these babies that are aborted around the world, um, that's not God's plan that people would do that, but God circumvents a lot of the trouble that could happen in people's lives by taking those babies on into heaven to be with him. So I'm not going to argue with God about that. Uh, it's, it's a sad thing for parents to go through this when uh, a baby does die, but we ought not to argue with God about that because if we had some idea, just, just looking at these things of what heaven is really, really like, if we really believed it, then we would, we would have much more confidence in God that he knows what he's doing. And, and that's yet another reason for people to trust Christ because... Uh, worldly people without Christ can't go through those things. They don't understand them. They become frustrated at God. Their minds haven't been renewed. They haven't been forgiven of their sins. They don't have the nature of God. So not understanding those things, they aren't comforted when a baby dies. But we know that God's people can be. God's people know what he's prepared for us. And so we look forward to that. We know that we have eternal life on, uh, on the inside. And we do know that when we leave this life, that God has a special place prepared for us in heaven. And I think that's the way we ought to look, look at this. You know, I, I talked about preaching funerals and talking about heaven. But all of us ought to have that on our mind. I mean, we're all going to get old here sometime or another. The Lord doesn't come back. And we're all going to go home to be with him. And when it comes time to die, you just look forward to going to be with the Lord in heaven. And when a loved one dies, don't think that if they know the Lord, don't think that it's a horrible thing for them to die for sure because they go to be in the presence of God our Savior, Jesus Christ our Savior. So God is an all-wise God, and and, and he has such a wonderful thing prepared for us. So I don't know how many people are going to be in heaven. Uh, It was Spurgeon's opinion that the greatest part of mankind will be saved. And then there are others who have the opinion that the greatest numbers of mankind will be lost. And I don't know which that is. I most likely or, or prefer to or tend to agree, I should say, with the, with the latter rather than the former. But, I, but even though there are going to be billions of people in heaven, there's going to be room to receive every one of them. 
And we think, well, well, it's been 2,000 years since Christ was here and since he died. What if he decides to wait another 2,000 years to come? I don't have any problem with that either. And uh, we just remember, well, one thing is that not all people, not all of the saved people are going to live in the New Jerusalem. They will have access to the city, but the New Jerusalem is the home of the bride of Christ, those that are in the church. And so God is also uh, will also create a, a new earth, and people will live upon this new earth. And as I said, they'll have access to go in and out of the city of the New Jerusalem. So not everybody that's saved is going to be in heaven at the same time. There's a new universe that God creates for us to explore the new earth and so we have all of that to look forward to as well and we're going to get to this a little bit later but if you go down there to verse number 26 it says that the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it and i take that to mean that there are people going in and out of heaven that don't live there so they're saved but they don't all live there because they're not a part of the bride of christ but regardless of how you calculate it This we know for sure, that an omnipotent God who always works in superlatives is not going to build a city that's overcrowded. And so when we all get to heaven, when uh, Jesus comes back and all this life is over with and we get to heaven, God's not going to look over that vast number of people and say, what happened here? I made a mistake. I don't have room to put all of these people. Well, we won't have to worry about that. This is not... Japan. No, in Japan, they have uh, the average there living space for people. Uh, it's five people to a thousand square feet. That's 200 square feet per person. Heaven is not like Japan. And if uh, Henry Morris has this figured out, he's got it figured here that you'd have 25 billion square feet on the first floor of your house. Does that make you wonder why people are just take time, they take time away from God and they, and they, want to get a few measly more dollars into their bank account and makes you wonder why people would rob God with their tithes and their offerings? Why would they do that? Jesus said, lay up treasures in heaven. And so all the time that you spend for God, all of the things that you give to God, that's for the purpose of furnishing your new home in heaven. And so I wonder, why would people people do that? And here's here's a good thing, I think, too, that uh, God is going to take away the memories of the mistakes that we've made in this life. I mean, the Bible says that heaven is a place where there's no sorrow, there are no tears. And if God allowed us to think about the mistakes that we make, especially this one, that we could have given so much to God and we didn't, and we get to heaven and see whether it's all alike, there'd be people beating their heads against the diamond walls all the time. Now, why have I been so stupid? I mean, why, why didn't I give God what he said? And so... Lots of people, I think, would be kicking themselves in heaven thinking how hard-headed they were that they didn't give time and they didn't give their resources to God. So I thought that I would include this section about the amplitude of the city, and that gives you a little bit of perspective of the portions that God deals with, and these are just mind-boggling. Can't outdo God, and you can't outthink him. Now, we move on then to another feature of the New Jerusalem. Fifthly is the apostles of the city. Verse 14 says, And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, we already talked about the material makeup of these walls, and uh, we did that as we talked about the architecture. But I skipped over this particular part because it deals with a little bit different subject. 
God is concerned about the foundations of the New Jerusalem, the foundations of the wall. And the Bible tells us here that the names of the apostles are written in those 12 foundation stones. And that is highly symbolic because the the apostles are the foundation of the church. And the New Jerusalem is the place that houses God's church. The main feature of it is the presence of Jesus Christ. So the whole testimony or the whole place is a testimony to the faithfulness of Christ and coming to this, this earth in order to give himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And this is why there are going to be so many people in heaven because of what Jesus did. So it's because of him that we deal with that last point. Heaven is a highly populated city. And that's because of the work that Christ did on Calvary. And then involved in the work that Christ had to do in this, in this world was the responsibility that he gave his apostles of preaching the gospel of Christ and bringing people to the knowledge of the gospel itself and how to be saved. And so Christ chose his apostles and they were, they were, they, they were just really uh, meant a great deal to him. He loved them and gave them a great responsibility. Now we notice then... Uh, that the apostles were foundational for the church. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Paul wrote that to the Ephesian church, pointing out that Christ's church is built upon these men. His church is built on them. They're the first building blocks of the church. They are the first members of his church. So they were actually the the seed of the church, and Christ committed the gospel, the teaching of the faith to them. And so these men continued to build the church throughout their lives. Their preaching and their witnessing brought many people to, to Christ. Christ loved them, and he committed to them that responsibility of bringing his chosen people to the knowledge of the gospel. Now, just to show you how much that Jesus thought of them, I want you to turn to John 17 for just a moment. And uh, here's where we read the intercessory prayer of Jesus. And this was just before he went to the cross, and he prayed for these men and all who would be won by their faithful testimony. So Jesus is praying, and he says in verse 6 of John 17, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have surely, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Jesus was very close to these men. He empowered them later through the Holy Spirit to do his work and also to remain faithful to their calling. And remember, as we studied each of them in Matthew chapter 10, we saw how that every one of those men died as a martyr for the cause of Christ. All of them but the apostle John. And he lived to be a very old man. He stayed faithful to the preaching of the word. And of course, he's the one that gave us the revelation that we're now studying. And then Jesus promised also that these men would have an integral part in his kingdom. In Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of glory... 
ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I don't know if you remember, but when we studied this before, I pointed out to you that when Jesus says that you followed me in the regeneration, there he's talking about the regeneration of the earth or when the millennial kingdom comes. So Jesus has a very special place for these apostles in the millennial kingdom. But he's not through honoring them with the millennial kingdom upon the earth because their names are going to be remembered for all eternity. They're inscribed into the foundations of the new Jerusalem. So they were very important. They're the foundation of the church. And as I said, the new Jerusalem is the home of the church. And then I think it's also important for us to point out about this, that their teachings are the only foundation that we have for the church. They taught what Jesus taught them, and they didn't go beyond that. Now, they did expand on Jesus' teachings, and that's what the later epistles in the New Testament are about. They're expansions of things that Jesus taught, but all of that was, was expanded by, their, by the Holy Spirit speaking through them, so they were able to have these other revelations and so forth. Uh, that came through the Holy Spirit. But that's the extent of revelation that we have. We don't have anything else but what came through Jesus and the apostles and these other writers of the New Testament. And so that means that Christ has no other foundation. Uh, Some people would have you believe that there were other writings that were left, that there are other revelations that are given, and some revelations are even given today. And so you have people out there looking for these spurious books of the New Testament. They claim were written by apostles or other people and they ought to be included in the New Testament canon. But God has no other revelation than what we have right here. This is all that he's given to us. And this was settled at the end of the first century. The apostles knew what books should have been included and we have the word of God intact and there is no more revelation given today. And so any, anybody who says that there is, the spurious books they claim, the apocryphal books they claim, or whether it is uh, Mormonism with their Book of Mormon, Jehovah Witnesses with the Watchtower and things that they add, the charismatic movement that also says that they receive new revelation from God God, all of that is false. In fact, the Bible contains in both Old and New Testaments warnings for anybody that would add anything to the revelation that God has given. So these men then are in the foundation walls of the New Jerusalem and they are recognized as the authority having received the word from God. So they're foundational for the church and there are no others that have authority. Now, secondly, I'd like to point out to you about the controversy over their names. Now, there there are 12 foundation stones, and in these stones are these 12 names. Now, for the most part, we don't have any problem with their names. We have them listed in Matthew 10. I know you're familiar with this. Uh, Matthew 10, verse number 2. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the publican, James the son of Alphaeus and Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, we don't have any problem with those names, do we? Except maybe the last one. What about that last one? Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Is Judas Iscariot's name in the foundation walls of the New Jerusalem? Now, before I get to that, I would like to point out 
that some of the apostles are known by other names. Uh, Simon is also Peter. Bartholomew is also Nathaniel. Thomas is Didymus. Matthew is Levi. Thaddeus is Levius, and also known as Judas of James. So he had three names. Simon the Canaanite is also Simon Zelotes. So which of those names is God going to inscribe into the foundation walls? I don't know. Don't ask me. I don't know. Uh, God knows who that, what, what names he's going to put there. If he decides to put all of them there, that's all right. He might decide to put all of their names in the foundation walls. So we know who they are. They know who they are. And God knows who they are. But this, this, this problem of Judas Iscariot, what are we going to do with that? Well, it's clear to me that Judas was not a saved man. Jesus said that he was possessed by Satan from the day that he was chosen. He was called a son of perdition, which means son of damnation or son of ruin. And in John 17, when Jesus was praying about the apostles, he said in verse 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled." So there, Jesus said that Judas was lost, and so therefore, Judas went to hell. In Acts chapter 1, we read this, And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen, that he may take part of the ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. So Scripture says Judas went to his own place. That means he didn't go to the same place as the other apostles did. He went to hell. And so then it would be very hard for us to imagine that there would be a person in hell who has his name written in the foundation walls of the New Jerusalem. So we rule that one out. I don't think we'd even consider that as an option, even though there are some people who actually do believe that Judas was a saved man. Well, the scripture that we have in Acts chapter 1 also presents us with another problem or at least it's a problem for some people. In, in Acts chapter 1, what I've just read you is where the apostles got together, they met together to choose another apostle to take the place of Judas. Now, Judas fell, and so his office was taken away. And since God is interested in numbers and in symmetry and in balance, there had to be another person to fill up that complement of the apostles. Now, we we surely couldn't imagine that God would intend to put these 12 foundation stones under the New Jerusalem and to have names in those stones and to leave one of those blank. So we do know that there's going to be 12 names in these stones. Now, in this particular case of of Acts chapter 1, Peter called the disciples together and they looked at two different candidates that they would decide between those two which which one would become a new apostle so they took a vote and as you well know Matthias was chosen to be the one to replace Judas and that's where the controversy begins because people say did Peter have the authority to call a meeting like that was the Holy Spirit involved in this was the decision made according to what the Holy Spirit would have them do was it right for them to call this meeting and there's some people that say that it wasn't J. Vernon McGee, for instance, says that Peter had no business calling this meeting, that it wasn't led by God, and that someone else should have been chosen as an apostle. We'll get to that in just a second. So there's really not much uh, argument over these names until we get to that one. Uh, J. Vernon McGee says, well, this is the reason that Matthias is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. 
And that's because they were wrong in choosing him. But do you remember when we studied the 12 apostles that there were some of them that didn't have anything in Scripture written about them but just their names? Simon Zelotes, there's nothing in Scripture at all about him but his name. James, the son of Alphaeus, there's nothing in Scripture written about him but his name. And so that's not an argument that really holds water. Then you go to Acts chapter 6, verse number 2, and there when it talks about all of the disciples together again, there it calls them the twelve. And that's a number that's always used to show that God has chosen them. So what's the problem with all of that? Well, we need twelve and Matthias isn't the one that should have been chosen, chosen, and who is the one that should have? And I think probably all of you know that the name that's offered up that should have been chosen as the other apostle was Paul. And you look at Paul. You look at Acts, for instance. Acts is divided into two sections. First part of it are the Acts of Peter. The second part are the Acts of Paul. And Paul is given more space in the book of Acts than Peter. And Paul is given more space in the rest of the New Testament than any of the apostles. So you look at that and think, well, well, surely Paul must be the one that would have been chosen. And uh, his name should be in those walls. Well, I, I don't think so. I think Matthias is right. And uh, I think that he will be one of those judges over Israel in the millennial kingdom. And in chapter 4, where it talks about the 24 elders, if 12 of those are representative of the apostles, then I do believe that Matthias is, the, is the, one of those 12. Now, and, uh, it's really interesting, too, to look at the criteria that was used in order to choose Matthias. In Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, it says, Wherefore of these men, which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of the resurrection. Now there, that tells us that Matthias was right there from the very beginning. He was with them at the baptism of John. And that was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John baptized him as well as the rest of the apostles. And then he was also there at the end to witness the resurrection of Christ. Now that was the criteria for this. You had to have the baptism of John. You had to have accompanied Jesus the entire time. And you had to be there to be a witness of the resurrection. So that means that Matthias must have been right out there just on the edge of this group of apostles. Not quite in, but there with them, hanging around all of the time. And so certainly, Jesus must have known about him. It doesn't seem strange at all that Matthias would have been chosen. And, and if the scripture did not need to be fulfilled, I mean, the Bible says that Judas had to be chosen because there has to be a betrayer. That fulfills scripture. We could very well imagine that if Jesus did not have to choose Judas in order for that purpose then Matthias would have been the one that Jesus chose. Uh, and we do believe, of course, again, that the Holy Spirit was in that. And so he is this 12th apostle. Well, you think about, to the obscurity of the apostles and uh, some of them that nothing is spoken of in Scripture about them but their names. Well, that doesn't mean that God has forgotten them. God has a record of their faithfulness. He knows about that even though we don't know about it. And uh, God's going to recognize that faithfulness for all eternity. So their walls, or their names rather, are in the foundation walls forever. 
One other point that I want to make about Paul, and then we'll finish up this evening. What about Paul? Is he slighted? I mean, he's so prominent in the New Testament. So much is written about him. Is he slighted because God won't have his his name written in those foundation walls? Well, I I would answer that with another question. Who is most likely to care nothing at all if he got recognized? You know, I'm not saying that any of the apostles were chess beaters, but which one of them really didn't care about recognition? This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet or am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Of course, God forgave him for that, but Paul never forgot about this. He persecuted and killed Christians before he became a child of God. And then one more thing that I'll say. How do you think Paul would feel about those chest-beating preachers today? I mean, how do you think Paul would feel about those that love to have the standing ovations when they enter into the room and people clapping for them? How would Paul feel about that? We don't have to wonder because he told us. Galatians 6, verse 14. But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Wouldn't it be great if we all had that attitude? God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, heaven is a place where God gets all the glory, and he gets all of it. Because he's the one that deserves it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the time we spent here tonight. And what a wonderful place that heaven is. And you prepared it for us. And Lord, we don't even know what to say to thank you for what you've given us. Lord, we look forward to that. And I just pray that every Christian here would faithfully serve you because we know what you have prepared for us in heaven. Be with our people tonight, Lord, and we thank you again for the time to be in your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.